Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org slash revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, good morning. Welcome to Scott's Hill. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. It is a blessing for us to be there with you. I want to invite you to come and join us live one Sunday. Look forward to seeing you here. Um, one of the things that our family has loved to do throughout the years growing up, I'm talking about my wife and I and my two kids, Ryan and Leslie, we've always loved to take vacations and particularly to amusement parks. How many of you like to go to amusement parks? You love to go to amusement parks. I always said we were the perfect roller coaster family because there were four of us and we all loved roller coasters. And no matter where we went, we would ride the roller coasters together. But we love amusement parks, all kinds, water parks, amusement parks. We love all the adventure, the excitement, all of the different shows and all of that. And of course, the quintessential um, amusement park is Disney. And so we've taken our kids to Disney so many times. I said, I don't even want to go again until I have grandkids. And the last time Ron and I went there, we were so bored because we had been there so many times that we just decided, hey, let's find one family and let's just follow them around all day. And every time they take a picture, we're in it. Can you imagine those people? Who are those people? That lucky family. But, but one of the things we love to do at amusement parks is when my kids were little, teaching them the new rides, getting them on the roller coasters, getting them involved in this new adventure. I'll never forget the time they experienced their very first 3D movie. It was at Disney. I don't even know what it was about. But, but I remember the glasses. They put the glasses on. They're all fuzzy in different colors, you know, and they're sitting there. The theater's dark. I'm sitting right here. Ryan's sitting next to me. Leslie's sitting next to him. And Chris is on the end. And we're putting the glasses on, and the movie starts. They've never seen a 3D movie before. And it was so fun. I wasn't watching that. I was watching them. The butterflies coming out, and they're trying to grab it, you know. The bees flying around, and all the different things are happening. And Chris is on the end going, I don't get it. I don't get I don't see it. What's, what, what's wrong? And she's doing that the whole time. I'm watching the kids. They're grabbing. Chris is just doing her glasses. And so we get down and all of a sudden things start coming at us. And it starts to be a little bit overwhelming for the kids. They're jumping back like that and I'm just laughing at it. And Chris says, I don't see it. <laughs> and, um, and so all of a sudden this snake comes out. Man, it's scary. I mean, it just, wow, the fangs are there. And then stuff flies from the ceiling like he's spitting on you. I'm looking at Ryan and Leslie and they're both screaming, I'm just laughing. Take the glasses off. Take the glasses off. And they're just screaming. And Chris is going, why? <laughs> She's just... And so finally, I ripped the glasses off the kids and they quit screaming. And I said, it's not real. It's not real. So we walk out and we're laughing. And the kids were, ooh, that was scary. And Chris says, I didn't see anything. <laughs> and then we realized everybody had a different experience in this 3D environment. I loved it because I'd seen them before and I knew exactly what to expect. My kids were overwhelmed by it because of all this information coming at them. And my wife was frustrated. She couldn't see anything. 
Then we come to realize that the reason she couldn't see the 3D is she's blind in her left eye. She has no depth perception. So she could not see in 3D, which explains why she married me. Uh, <laughs> but what I realized was with this 3D approach, everybody just had a different experience in it. Now, here's the thing that we know. We live life not one-dimensional, not two-dimensional, but we live life in the three-dimensional and even in the four-dimensional. And the same is true when we live our Christian life. We're never called to live our Christian life in 1D or 2D, but we're called to live the Christian life in a 3D approach. And you might be saying, what are you talking about, Phil? Well, if you've been here long enough at Scotts Hill, you know that I'm talking about three important Ds for the Christian life. And this 3D Christianity always involves three specific aspects, doctrine, devotion, and duty. If we're going to live a Christian life that's going to be balanced, we have to live a life that includes sound biblical doctrine. But it has to flow into devotion both to the Lord Jesus and to one another. And then the result of that is a life filled with duty and service. So we need to have a balance in these areas. Now, let me tell you one of the things the enemy always wants to do. He wants to get us out of balance. He wants us to focus on one to the neglect of others. And he's oftentimes trying to get us, hey, you know, it's okay if you just focus on doctrine. As long as all of it stays in your head, I'm okay with that. Or it's okay if you focus just on love. You love everybody, that's wonderful. But if you don't have doctrine, you can lead them astray. I'm okay with that. Or you can do all the duty you want. You can serve people, you can, you can love people, but if you never tell them about Jesus, I'm okay with that. And the enemy is always trying to entice us to land in one of these camps. But the Lord Jesus wants there to be a balance in our life of both doctrine, devotion, and duty. As we continue in our study in the book of Revelation, we're in chapters 2 and 3 today. And we're going to be looking at the seven churches. And this is exactly what the enemy does to these seven churches. He tries to entice them to be in one area to the neglect of others. And as a result, these churches had become ineffective in their communities. And the Lord Jesus, in chapters 2 and 3, is dictating letters to these seven churches in Asia. And John, the apostle, is writing these down. And as the Lord Jesus is dictating these, he is writing these to these seven churches. Now, when we get to Revelation 2 and 3, many people will translate that and say, the seven churches are symbolic of the seven ages of the church. And that these are seven ages that the church is going to go through before the tribulation and the return of Christ. Now, some people can put a lot of, of, of talk about that, and that certainly can be true. But these are not hypothetical churches. These are real churches, real people, real problems, real struggles, real temptations, real victories, and real failures. They're real. They're written to them for us. You remember that? These are written to the seven churches in Asia, but they're written for us. And so these churches not only represent the churches 2,000 years ago and the churches throughout the millennium, 
but even for us today. And in these seven churches, here's what Jesus does. There's a specific pattern that we see played out in almost all of the churches. And all through chapters two and three, we see this worked out. There's a common pattern. He always begins with the commendation. The only church that receives no commendation is Laodicea, the seventh church. Then he goes to criticism. The only church that doesn't receive criticism is Smyrna, which is the second church. Then he goes to correction. He's going to give a correction to all the churches, and then he gives them a final challenge. What we're going to do today is we're not going to look at all seven churches. We don't have the time to do that. But if you want a more in-depth study of the seven churches, several years ago, I did a series called Seven. And in that series, we looked at every single church in depth, understanding its geography and its history. You can go online, you can find that series called Seven, and you can watch it in more depth. But today, here's what I want to do. I want to take the seven churches, and I want to show you the marks of unhealthy churches. And when we look at these seven churches and we combine them together and we look at all the different things that they're struggling through, we find that there are three marks of an unhealthy church. And what we're going to do is kind of look at some of the churches and see what happens and what is happening and where we see the imbalance in their lives with doctrine, devotion, and duty. And if we don't have a balance, we will be an unhealthy church and we could be any of these seven churches, depending on the um, imbalance that we have. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at the three marks of an unhealthy church. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we unpack these selected verses, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand who we are and who you're calling us to be. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's where we start. The seven churches bring us three marks of an unhealthy church. Number one, a church that has sound biblical doctrine, but is unloving towards others in the church and in the world. The first mark of an unhealthy church is a church that has sound biblical doctrine, but is unloving towards one another and is unloving to people in the world. We see this in the church of Ephesus. It's the very first church that Jesus is writing the letter to. And in Ephesus, what we see is that this was a church that was steeped in good, sound doctrine. But they were mean-spirited to other people who were not like them. And in the church of Ephesus, here is what Jesus says. He says, I know your works. Now, here's the amazing thing. In every other letters, Jesus says, I know your works. There's nothing we're going to hide before the Lord Jesus in the way we do ministry. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The church in Ephesus had incredible deep doctrine. They had the ability to know the word of God. They had the ability to be able to detect the false teachers among them and point them out. Now, they had incredible training. The church in Ephesus had some heavy hitters as their disciple makers. 
The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19 and 20 goes to Ephesus. He spends three years with the Ephesian believers. He is discipling them for three years. He pours his life into them. And then what does he do? He leaves Timothy behind. And Timothy stays there to shepherd them and disciple them. And one of Timothy's major responsibilities was to point out false doctrine and correct the people. So they had the Apostle Paul. There's Timothy And then John himself, the writer of the book of Revelation and the gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is there. He's an elder in the life of the church. These were not little little no-name people. These were the heavy hitters of Christendom. And here are these three men that are teaching them the great truths of the word of God. They had incredible doctrine. In fact, in verse 6, Jesus even points out, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans was a group of false teachers who came from a man named Nicholas. Some suggest that this was one of the original seven um, deacons set apart for the church who led people into heresy. And these Nicolaitans believed that you can do what you want externally, but love Jesus internally. In other words, just pursue your passions, pursue your desires, pursue all of the things of the world, but just love Jesus inside and you're okay. You can even bow the knee to Caesar. You can offer incense to him, but you can still love Jesus. So they were trying to make this this, uh, separation in the Christian life that you can do what you want physically, but just love Jesus in your heart and you're okay. And they pointed it out. They were great with doctrine. They were solid in their orthodoxy. But here's the criticism. But this I have, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had. at. What is he talking about? Your love for me and your love for one another. You have forgotten about love. You're all steeped in doctrine. You know the truths of God's word. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You're able to point out false teaching. But you have no grace. There's no grace. You're all about the law. You're all about policing people's lives. You're all about making sure that everybody's in line. But you don't love anybody. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians in his letter, he writes this at the very last verse of that book, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now all these years have gone by. And let me tell you what's happened to them. They had great orthodoxy, but they had no orthopraxy of the things of God. Oh, they knew the truth of God's word. They can detect any error. But they were not people who were loving other people. Here's the danger. Doctrine without devotion will always lead to three things. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. This is a self-imposed thought of eliteness because I understand things that you don't. And there's a self-righteousness among us. Legalism. Legalism is a man-imposed system placed upon other people that they must adhere to externally 
or they will not be accepted into the tribe. Here's a third one, a critical spirit towards others. A jaundiced eye, always with suspicion, looking at other people. And when a church is centered on doctrine alone and does not have a love for other people, here's what we see. We see that there's great truth, but there's no love. And when there's truth without grace, there's always legalism. Truth without grace breeds a legalistic, critical spirit. I know a lot of churches like this. I know a lot of churches, and I know people in churches where they spend all their time judging other people. They're critical of everybody else's life. They feel like they're their spiritual policemen. And you know what we end up doing? We develop our own tribes, and we get in this tribalism. And we put ourselves in this tribe, or in this tribe, or in that tribe. And if somebody doesn't fit my tribe, then we point the finger at them. We tell them everything that's wrong that they do. And we don't have fellowship. And we don't love. And there's no grace. That grieves the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the church is so steeped in doctrine. Now let me say something clear here. Doctrine is not the enemy. Doctrine is not the problem. We are to have deep doctrine in the life of a church. But when we exclude the love and the devotion for other people in the midst of that, we become critical, hard-hearted people. And we separate ourselves from others. And people don't want to be with us. And here's the thing that we end up doing. We end up segregating ourselves because of tribes. I'm going to tell you, if there's ever a time that this is happening, it is now in the life of the church. When you think about all the issues that we've got to deal with, and we get so sidetracked, we begin to judge other people's lives harshly. Now, through the church, there have been a lot of times that this has happened, particularly through particular different positions. Now, let me just tell you where I find myself if I have to put myself in a tribe. I, I, am, I am definitely reformed in my theology. I am a continuationalist when it comes to the works of the Spirit cautiously, and I am missional in my approach to, to all kinds of, of life involvement in the community. So I'm reformed, continuationless, missional. That's where I would be. Now, I just have to confess that in a lot of churches that reformed, I've seen a lot of critical spirit among those kind of people, among my brothers, among my tribe, because there's a tendency of being overjudgmental. And through the course of time, we can have some differences when it comes to theological positions, but we don't have to point our fingers and say, hey, you're wrong, I'm right. We may disagree on those issues, but we are never not to love each other in the midst of those issues. One of my favorite stories was um, um, George Whitfield. He was a reformed brother. He was a Calvinistic person. He taught and leaned heavily in the sovereignty of God. And in that day, there were two groups. There were the Calvinists and there were Arminians. Here is this great teacher of Calvinism, George Whitfield. And on the opposite extreme, there is John Wesley, who is an Arminian. And he believed in the, the free will of man. These guys often debated one another and sometimes very, very dynamically. One time a young man came to George Whitfield. He said, sir, I need to ask you a question. Do you suppose that you would see John Wesley in heaven? 
And George Whitfield said this. He said, I scarcely believe that I will see John Wesley in heaven. The young man said, I knew it. I knew it. And George Whitfield said, stop. I'm not finished. I will not see John Wesley in heaven because he will be so near the throne of Jesus and I so far away. You see, the thing is this. If we're going to pursue doctrine and if it is missing love, then it grieves the heart of Christ. Because truth without grace always leads to legalism. So, one of those unhealthy churches is doctrine. Sound biblical doctrine, but unloving to other people. But here's the second mark of an unhealthy church. A church that has great love and service, but is doctrinally shallow. A church that loves to serve other people, that's always on the front lines of ministry, but they're shallow doctrinally. Again, there's no balance there. There are two churches that stand out in these seven churches that Jesus is speaking about. One is Pergamum. Pergamum was a a church that was filled with knowledge but it was filled with a church that loved people. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now he's saying this, that you are faithful. In fact, you have been faithful to the end. You have great love, you have great devotion, you have great service to me and to the community. He mentions Antipas. We don't really know who he is, except we believe that he was a faithful leader in the church in Pergamum and that he was actually, tradition says, that Domitian put him to death and he actually put him inside of a bronze cow and he roasted it over the fire and he literally was roasted alive. But he was faithful to the end. And this was a church, man, they they had great faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. How about the other? We're looking at Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Man, this was an incredible church that loved their community. He talks about their works, talks about their love, talks about their faith and their service to their community. In fact, that their service in those days were greater than when they first started. This was a church that loved its community. This was a church that was feeding the poor. This was a church that was helping in disaster relief. This was a church that was out there for social injustice. This was a church that was going all out for its community. They had an incredible love for their community. And you must think, what in the world would Jesus have to criticize this church for? But in Pergamum, here's what he criticized them. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We just heard about them. And so Jesus says, this is what I hold against you. You're following false teachers. What does he say to the church in Thyatira? 
But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Both of these names are Old Testament names. And both of these Old Testament names have to do with sexual immorality, deals with idolatry, and deals with accommodating the things of the culture into the life of a believer. And here's what Jesus is saying. You got great service, but your shallow doctrine is destroying your lives. You have great love for those around you, but you're not telling them the truth about me. You're not telling them the truth about what their greatest needs are. And there's always a danger for a church to contextualize itself in its culture. The danger is not that it contextualizes itself, but it can over-contextualize itself. And because it loves its culture so much, it doesn't want anyone offended. So it lightens the restrictions. It brings everyone in under one roof. And we just love you. We just want to serve you. We just want everybody to be happy. And we remove the doctrine and the truth of what God says about sin and righteousness and holiness and purity. Let me tell you what happens whenever you have devotion without doctrine. It leads to a toleration of immorality. I want you to think of the church today and where we've come from. There were years and years ago where sexual immorality was not seen as anything other than sin. Whether it was heterosexual sex before marriage, the church never was open to living together, cohabitation before marriage. Homosexuality sex is something that the church has always stood against and seen that God says it's an abomination to him. We see all the other kinds of immorality that's being played out, adultery, all of these things. The church has always stood against those. But when you look at where we are today, the church is accommodating people's feelings, and we don't want to call sin, sin anymore. And therefore, what do we do? We've grown numb to all the constant barrage that has happened in our culture. And before long, the church just simply embraces it or just ignores it as a reality altogether. And then we begin to tolerate immorality among us. How about this? Toleration of impurity. There was a time where the church knew that we are to walk in holiness and we are to be distinctively different from the culture. There were times where there were certain things that were shunned in the life of the church and there were certain things that would cause us to blush as believers and we'd back off and say, no, no, those things are clearly not of God. And then what do we see today? We see the accommodation of all of these things through movies. Pornography, magazines, television shows that we once never would have celebrated. But now we have Christian watch parties in our homes to celebrate shows like The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. And we tolerate it. We accommodate it. And we over-contextualize ourselves to where the church is like the world. Here's a third one. There's a toleration of idolatry. 
What happens? When we don't deal rightly with immorality, when we don't deal rightly with impurity, we tell people that it is okay to live this way and be okay with God. And they end up creating a God of their own mind that accepts their lifestyle. And the church aids in that. Here's the bad thing about tolerating things. It doesn't matter what culture you live in. It doesn't matter how it applies. But listen carefully to this. You and, you and I become what we tolerate. We become what we tolerate. And if we tolerate these things in the life of the church and we put doctrine aside and all we want to do is just love people, we don't want to talk about sin. That'll offend them. We don't want to call that sin because that's not... That's not with our culture today. We don't want to speak in those ways because it may come across as hate language. So what do we do? Just love everyone. Invite everyone in. Let's not tell anybody about truth. And you want to know what? When you don't tell people about truth, you've just demonstrated that you don't love them. Listen carefully. Truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth is liberalism, and it goes the opposite direction. I can tell you the tr truth about two churches right now in our culture. One no longer exists. The other one is struggling today because they have tolerated certain things in their midst. And because of that toleration, one church is completely disbanded. The other one is going through sexual allegations upon allegations at almost every single campus they have because of shallow doctrine. You see, the thing is this, if we are to love people, but we're to love people in truth. Here's the third mark. A church that has doctrine and devotion, but becomes indifferent and apathetic in reaching the world. Wow, there are a lot of churches like this. A church that has good doctrine, they have good devotion, but they really are apathetic and indifferent towards the world. These are the churches that love their Christian bubbles. These are the churches that love to fellowship. These are the churches that love to gather together. They seem to have life, but it's just for them. Jesus points out two of these churches. He speaks about Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, that's pretty powerful. Some visitor might come to your church and say, that's a dead church. But when the Lord Jesus comes to your church and says, you're a dead church, you better take notice. And what does Jesus say? He says, you have the look of alive, but you're dead. You know what they really were? I love the way one guy said this. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says, they were a mortuary with a steeple. Vance Havner said, they were a show window in a department store where all the show was in the window and nothing was in the stock room. And they had abundance. They had resources. They had all of these things going for them. The community must have thought, wow, that's a church that has all these resources. But they were dead because they did nothing for their community. They had their little holy huddle, us four no more. 
They had their little Bible study groups, their little fellowship groups, their little affinity groups, all of these things in their nice little Christian bubble, but nobody would go into the community to love them. Oh, how about this one, Laodicea? You know about Laodicea, but most people get the wrong point of it. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This was a church with incredible resources. This was a church that was in a very affluent city, Laodicea. But this was a church that was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. Now, many people read this and they say, oh, Jesus wants us either to be on fire for him or not on fire for him at all. He wants us to love him or not love him. No, that would never be the heart of the Lord Jesus for a church. So that's not the picture. The people of Laodicea, when they heard this, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Let me give you the geographical landscape so you can understand. To the north is a town called Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its mineral baths, and it was hot mineral baths from volcanic rock. People would travel all to the north up here to go to Hierapolis because they wanted to get in the hot waters of the mineral baths for healing. And people would come from all over the region to do that. To the east of Hierapolis is Colossae. Colossae was known for its cold, pristine waters. There was a torrent of water that was coming out of the side of a mountain. It was filtered. It was pure. It was cold. It had an incredible taste. Just like people would go to Hierapolis for the healing baths, they would go to Colossae for the refreshment of the cold water. Guess what was located in the valley between the two? Laodicea. And there the hot mineral waters from Hierapolis would flow into the valley of Laodicea. And there the cold, fresh waters of Colossae would flow into the valley of Laodicea. And in Laodicea, those hot mineral waters would clash with the cold water and make it absolutely insipid, smelly, stinky, and lukewarm, and not consumable at all. The people in Laodicea had to have their water shipped in. Because they couldn't drink it. And here's the picture that Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, I wish that you were hot like the healing springs of Hierapolis and bring healing to people in your community. Or that you would be cold like the refreshing waters of Colossae and bring refreshment to people's souls. But you're neither. You're not hot healing. You're not cold of refreshing. You're lukewarm. And the only thing that you make me is sick to my stomach to where I want to vomit. That is a serious charge. When a church has all the resources and has all the message and has the hope that the world needs and we keep it to ourselves, and we don't tell anybody. Oh, we love our little groups. We love to give money to missions so somebody else can go do it. We love to collect shoe boxes so somebody else can go deliver it to the kids. We love to have our little prayer meetings for people, but we never go out of our Christian bubble. We never go into our community, and we offer no freshness or healing to people around us. That's an unhealthy church, and that church grieves the heart of Christ. 
You see, doctrine and devotion without duty always leads to a complacency with the gospel. There's no urgency. We made it. We're part of the club. Let's just celebrate until Jesus comes back. And there's a callousness towards those who are without Jesus. We don't go help the needy. We don't minister. And we lose the heart of what the church is to be. The problem is there's no balance. Now, let me tell you what my heart is as a pastor. As I look at these churches, and I want to tell you, in every church, in every church, and I can tell you some that fit in all these categories, and I have to ask myself the question, where's Scott's Hill in this? Where are we? I think that we're a mix, but I think that this is what God wants us to see. I met with Kelly Baker this week, and I drew out this diagram on a sheet of paper, and I gave it to her, and I said, I want you to put this on the screen. It's not exactly to the scale that I wanted it to be because we're trying to get words in there, but you'll get the picture. The three Ds are doctrine, knowing God and ourselves. Devotion, loving God and one another. And duty, serving God and others. We've just seen the dangers of being exclusively in one or the other without all three. But our goal is to represent all three in our ministries. And when we have doctrine, devotion, and duty, this is where we should be living. Now that literally is bigger than that picture, but this is the sweet spot for what we're called to do because this is what 3D discipleship is all about. And our goal at Scott's Hill is to try to be in a place where there's a balance of all of these Doctrine is important. That's why we have Tuesday theology class. We've got 90 people in that class, people who are coming to want to learn more about theology. We have to have a clear understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him. But this is why we have small groups is devotion to one another and to the Lord where we grow in community together and we're being able to experience life with one another and loving one another. And then duty is serving others within this church and in the community. And as we seek to follow this balance, this is who we are. We are to be in the center of this. Now, we don't always hit it. It's almost a moving target. But the goal is to have an absolute balance in all of those areas because those are the things that bless the heart of Christ. And that is 3D Christianity. So Jesus gives a commendation. He gives a correction, I mean, a, a, a criticism. But now he gives the correction. What is the correction? It's real simple. Repent. In all of the seven churches, repent. Repent. Let me tell you something about repentance. Repentance is a beautiful invitation from the Lord Jesus to you and me. That's what repentance is. It's an invitation for us to come and join him in his work of transforming lives. It's the opportunity for us to recognize that there's been a criticism, and here's the correction. I turn 180 degrees, and I turn to him. That's repentance. And it is an invitation for, from Jesus to come and be what he wants us to be. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, Peter has just preached his first message. 
the day of Pentecost. And the people cry out and ask, what shall we do to be saved? And here's what Peter says. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Repent. Turn back. Then he says this, that your sins may be blotted out. Not only are our sins forgiven, but our sins are removed. They're redacted. God doesn't see them anymore. And here's the sweet spot. So that times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord would come. Do you hear that? Here's, here's the beautiful thing of repentance. When I repent, when I turn back to him, he promises me not only is there forgiveness and the removal of this offense, but times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So what do we need to repent of today? Listen carefully. You may be here today and you may be the person that has all the doctrine right. But your heart is not loving to other people. You need to repent. You need to repent. Just say, Father, I'm so sorry for the fact that my heart is callous to other people. I confess that to you and I ask you to make me like Jesus to love others. It may be this morning that you're one of those people that, oh, you love others, but you recognize that you're shallow in your doctrine. And the Lord Jesus is calling you to repent. That I'm sorry for the fact that I've not taken more diligent time in studying and knowing the truth about who you are because I never want to mislead anybody from the truth of your word. It may be that you need to repent from indifference and apathy. Your heart has grown cold. You're just content with your Christian life until the Lord Jesus comes back or until he ushers you into his presence. And he's calling you today to repent from your indifference and your apathy that we would be the healing waters, the refreshment that our culture needs. And maybe this morning you're here and you're not a believer. And as you've been going through this study, you see the beauty of the Lord Jesus. You see his love for his church. You see that he wants to correct his bride and he has given you an invitation today to repent to repent of your sins and to turn to him. And he is the one that is going to bring the healing waters of your life. He's the one that's going to be a refreshment of your soul. He's the one that's going to forgive you of your sins and blot out every sin so that you can have a relationship with him that will go through eternity. And today his invitation is for you. And he's just calling you and saying, I want you to experience this kind of life. Because I died for you. I rose on the third day for you. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father right now for you. And I'm inviting you to be part of what I've done for you. Will you come and will you surrender? There's the picture. And the goal for Scotts Hill 
is to be in the middle. Doctrine, devotion, and duty. With the balance of not only the Christian life, but of this church and who he wants us to be. Love him. Love one another. Love the world. You see, because we've seen last week that in his right hand are the seven stars. The leaders and the churches are in his hands. But in his hands are the marks of redemption that go throughout the ages, the nail-scarred hands of where redemption is demonstrated. But not only do we see that the story of redemption is written in the hands of the Lord Jesus, but the story of redemption is written in our lips, on our hands, in our lives, as we go and as we proclaim Jesus is Lord. So we're going to close with a word of prayer and then with a song. So I'm going to ask you now to stand as we stand together. Father, thank you for your love for the bride. Father, may you remind us of how deeply you love us and, and the balance that you desire there to be in our lives. And Father, as we sing this song as a declaration of what you have done through your son, Jesus, that all the story of redemption is in his hands. And he has given that to us to proclaim it to a world. May we be the church that you desire us to be. And that, Father, we would be loving. We would be doctrinally sound. We would be serving our community for the glory of Jesus' name. And we pray in his name. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.